Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less traveled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. I wanted to acknowledge early on that this week's episode may be a trigger for some people, as it contains discussion of rape and abuse. But I really wanted to feature today's guest, as I think that although sometimes stories of survival can be difficult to listen to at points, these are really important conversations to have. And the overarching message that today's guest provides is one of hope. I've put links to Rape Crisis and Women's Aid on the show page, and if you would like to support the vital work that they do, then do consider donating online. These organisations are grossly underfunded, and it is vital for women to know that they will be supported if they come forward. This isn't an ad at all, it's just a a shout out for two very worthy organisations in an attempt to help other women out of a place of darkness towards a brighter future. My guest today telling the story of her life and her career is Madeline Black. After being gang raped at the age of 13 and subsequently on three further occasions before her 18th birthday, she has gone on to become a successful psychotherapist, writer, speaker, wife and mother. Her powerful memoir, Unbroken, which I'd highly recommend to you, tells of her recovery from adversity, her desire to choose forgiveness and to actively seek redemption. Madeline's wish to understand why the young men who raped her had chosen that path, what affected their lives and their decisions, has led her to be part of the Forgiveness Project, a unique worldwide project that collates the powerful stories of those whose lives have been affected by violence, terrorism and trauma, but who have learned how to forgive in order to move on in their own lives. Since giving her first public talk in 2015, Madeline has appeared on Radio 4 with Trevor MacDonald, legend, BBC Radio 5 and BBC Radio Scotland. She appeared in Dispatches on Channel 4 and most recently has been selected to do a TEDx talk in Glasgow later this year. As it says on her website, Madeline recognises that she was a victim of a crime that left her silent for many years, but has now found her voice and intends to use it. Not just for her, but for so many who can't find theirs yet. Sexual violence is so deeply entrenched in our culture, and she hopes that by simply speaking out and writing about it, she can help to combat it by reducing the stigma while promoting a cultural change. Um, So do you want to just start by telling me a little bit about where you grew up and your early life, Madeline? Sure. I grew up in London, in North London. I'm a Londoner, but now I live in Glasgow, Scotland. I've been here about 25 years. I'm one of five. I have three sisters and a brother, and I grew up in Hendon, North London. Ah. And your memoir, Unbroken, obviously tells the story about a fairly life-changing event that happened to you when you were 13. Do you want to just set the stall out with that, Madeline, as a kind of backdrop to everything else that happened in your life? Sure. So really, at 13, after a night out, I knew that my childhood was over because I ended up being gang raped that night by two men. 
I knew one of the young men. My friend came up with a suggestion to have this night out, and she just was everything I wasn't. You know, she was super cool at school, so I jumped at the chance. And her mum was away, so we both lied about where we were staying, and we had her empty flat. Somehow, we managed to buy a bottle of vodka. This was the late 1970s, so I guess the laws were a bit more relaxed. And we took it to a local cafe uh, near to where we were staying, and we drank it. I'd never drunk before. I was only 13 and half the size I am now, and I just threw up everywhere. And we were kicked out from this cafe, and two of the young men on our table left at the same time and put us in a black taxi to take us back to her mum's empty flat. Madeline's description of the events of that night in her memoir is raw and evocative, as you might imagine. I realised in that moment, she says, that I was lying on a rug, nearly naked and completely drunk, in a room with two boys, and one of them was doing whatever he wanted to me while the other looked on. All the while, I heard people in the communal garden having a party. I could smell their barbecue coming through the open window in the bedroom. Rather than fight him off, a futile move, I wondered what they were having to eat. In those surreal moments of putting my attention outside the room, I felt myself float right out of my body, and all of a sudden I was looking down at the scene on the floor as if it were happening to someone else. That experience when you were 13 years old obviously shapes the rest of your life, you know, going forwards in such a... horrifying and unthinkable way um how did that kind of impact on you in the immediate term and then and then in the longer term in terms of your education perhaps and and your development as a teenager well one of the last things that the worst one said to me was that if I told anyone that he would find me and he would kill me and I believed him so I know now the pressure of not finding our voice is huge and it has to come out and it leaked out of me in so many different ways. I developed anorexia, I had depression, I had so many fears, phobias, anxieties, but worst of all was what it did to my mind. I just thought that I was worthless, dirty, contaminated. I had no self-belief, no self-worth. I was suicidal. I attempted suicide just before my 14th birthday. I ended up in a children's psychiatric ward for two months. And when I left, you know, when I was writing my memoir, Unbroken, I wanted to see if they had any idea. So I asked for my notes and they had no idea what had happened to me. They only were concerned with me putting weight on and giving me antidepressants. So when I left hospital, my behavior just got wilder. I just rebelled even more, started to use a lot of alcohol and drugs just to numb out and, and disconnect and not feel or think because it was very hazy. I really couldn't remember all the details from that night. I clearly knew something had happened, but I it was just really surreal because during the event as well, I literally left my body. So I was watching it from sitting on top of the wardrobe, which sounds a bit odd. But when the memories eventually came back, it felt so dreamlike and surreal. And school wasn't a good time for me. I uh, really left school with hardly any qualifications. Mm-hmm. And you were abused two further times before your 18th birthday, is that correct? Yeah, actually three times. It was only when I was writing my book that I, you know, I just used to think I had a lot of bad sex because I was so promiscuous. If a guy tried it on... 
And I just let them do it because I was so scared it would get violent that I just lay there and let them do whatever they wanted because I had no self-respect for my body at all. And the worst had already happened anyway. But it was only when I was writing that I thought, you know, I said no and they said yes and they just carried on anyway. And interestingly, so many people say to me, well, you know, that happened to me too. And that happened to me as well. And people identify more with I mean, it's not about comparison, but more what I would guess we would call date rapes or rapes in marriage or, you know, acquaintance rapes rather than the extreme case that I had when I was 13. Mm. And it's interesting how now with the the Me Too movement and people starting to slowly begin to, to talk more about experiences like that, which previously people might not have referred to as a rape, yeah. but more an issue around consent then these sorts of things are coming out more and more but it's good that it's coming out so people question it and so they they really have to be very clear about consent Mm, I was actually going to ask you further down the line but it's cropped up now but I I know you do a lot of speaking in schools now and speaking in general how do you find people's attitudes around consent um, and things like that and, and and rape and the lines between the two Madeline what's your experience of young people's attitudes about that it's very interesting I was speaking last week uh, for BBC Radio Humberside and it was a vicar who was also part of our group that was speaking and she gave me some alarming facts that young boys as young as eight they've recorded have had access to porn and I think that's where a lot of them are getting their sex education. You know, it's, the reports have shown that young boys think it's normal that a girl is crying while they're having sex because they are educated by porn. And I think, well, that's really, we're going really wrong somewhere. We need to start at a young, young age, you know, like nursery level, about what respect looks like, what a healthy relationship is, what consent is, and not just consent in a sexual relationship, consent of all things, you know, when I was little, you were forced to go and kiss your grandma or your grandpa, whether you wanted to or not, or give someone the hug. And you should be asked, you should be given that choice. It's so important, isn't it? And actually, it's it's interesting listening to you talking about porn there and the attitudes that are formed in early teenage years or or even younger, as you say, that, that come from people watching porn and the the violence that is available to be consumed on the internet so readily these days means that children have access to some really quite disturbing imagery and and storylines that make that then they conceive to be potentially normal which is just quite Mm -hmm. terrifying isn't it really terrifying from a place of extreme darkness madeline has gone on to have a successful career a happy marriage and a family with wonderful children of her own I asked how on earth she began to pull herself back from the brink in those circumstances to improve her mental and physical health and to rebuild a life for herself. Yeah, well, it was actually having a family that really started me on my healing journey. When my mum discovered I was smoking a lot more drugs than she realised, she called all of my friends' parents to let them know. So I really wasn't very popular at school and nobody was speaking to me. So my parents suggested, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to go away for some time, to leave the country for a bit, just to get a change of scenery. And I went to Israel for a year. And at the end of my year away, I met this blonde, blue-eyed Glaswegian (laughs) called Stephen and You know, he was the first man that I really felt I could trust, that I felt safe around. I knew he wouldn't harm me. And after about four or five years, 
uh, of commuting backwards and forwards from London to Glasgow, I realised that it was getting serious, and he popped the question. Wow. But I had to, yes, but I had to make sure that he knew that um, I, w- I told him I would never become a mum because I just thought giving birth was going to be like being raped again, and I just thought I can't do that. And he was okay with that to start with. But I remember the exact moment that it completely reversed. I completely flipped my decision on motherhood. We used to save all our annual leave and go away every winter. I don't really know why I live in Scotland because I love the sunshine. (laughs) And we had been in Thailand for four weeks and we were on this beautiful island, Koh And he asked me how about starting a family. We've been married for about three years. And I was all ready to say, look, you know why I can't do that. I've explained this to you. But something came in and I thought... You know, if I never become a mum, they've won. I'm giving them all their power and control over me. And I thought, I don't want that anymore. So there and then I came up with a plan that I just called my best revenge. That was, I would be determined to become a mum and I would live my life as best as I could, refusing to be identified by them. So when I left Thailand, I went into therapy again. And two years later, I had Anna. And then three years after that, Mimi arrived. And then five years later, Layla arrived. And I really thought that that was it, you know. But I, looking back now, we can convince ourselves of anything. Because I still had many fears, many phobias, mainly around men, my safety, and being out of control. So really through my children and and through working as a psychotherapist, I saw my many fears. And one day I thought I have to really face them. I can't allow them to run alongside my life because, you know, I showed my children, I think, what it was to survive something that was so awful. But I wanted to show them how to live a life. I was so concerned about protecting my life that I was protecting myself from living as well if that makes sense. No, definitely, definitely. Interestingly, had a clinical psychologist on the podcast last week and she was talking about the difficult step of help seeking in the first place. And at what point did you take that brave move, you know, having been so vulnerable as a child and intimidated and threatened with, you know, the the with the threat if you spoke out, at what point did you feel that you could tell either your family or your now husband or or actually seek professional help and how did that come about Madeline? Yeah it didn't go too well the first time I spoke about it. I was nearly 16 and my behavior was pretty much rebellious I was off the wall and whatever my parents said do I would do the opposite so I had gone out when they said not to go out and when I came back my mum is screaming at me she's so angry telling me you know that I'm putting myself in danger and anything can happen don't you realize what you're doing Inside my head, I'm screaming the words, but I I couldn't find my voice. So I left a note on my pillow that day and I went to school. And when I came back, my parents were waiting and they asked me if it was true. But when they called the other girl involved, she said it hadn't happened like I said it did, that they were nice boys. They wouldn't have done that. And I just felt so betrayed. So that really silenced me again. It just shut me down even more. So I think the first time I really went for help was when I decided to become a mum. You know, I had to research therapists and I went through many before I could really feel like they could really listen to me. But I used to try to phone rape crisis helplines, which I later ended up working on myself. And I couldn't speak. I couldn't say the words. I just would put the phone down or just hover silently on the phone for a while. And then I'd put the phone down. It's just so hard to find your voice initially and say those words because it's 
it's such an intimate crime that it just filled me with shame. You know, I just thought if people knew that they would see me how I saw myself, which was worthless, dirty, contaminated. Um, but I realized now it was never, ever my fault. And actually that interesting that you became somebody who offered rape crisis help to people in the end, which is, you know, the kind of ultimate uh gift that you can give someone else is to be in a position to help others yeah but but by then it was a few years ago I hadn't come out publicly yet I did the best job that I could do but I wondered really how present I really was it was I think it was part of my healing as well to be a volunteer there but if I went back now I think I would be a very different very different kind of uh, volunteer there so once you began uh, you were obviously married and then had your children. Um, you said you left school with few qualifications, obviously, given the the kind of substance of what had happened to you. How did you then kind of get into the idea of becoming a psychotherapist yourself uh, in order to help others? Yeah, well, it's when I moved to Scotland. Um, I had one child in England. I've got two Scottish children. I always wanted to work with a woman's organisation. So I think it was maybe building up to rape crisis. I worked for a long time as a support worker for Women's Aid. And really, while I was there, I just wanted to get a better qualification to be a better support worker. And I went to an introduction to counselling skills. And I thought, okay, I'll do the diploma. Then after that, I did the I furthered on my counselling, I went to do psychotherapy. And there, I just really liked working with people that, that had different issues, because I saw it's not the issue that's really the problem it's what we do with our problems that really matters and so I decided to leave women's aid and work as a therapist cool I mean women's aid I think they do phenomenal work don't they and actually often very yeah they're very kind of um under recognized for the the quality of the work that they do underfunded yeah indeed indeed we didn't know from month to month whether we would have funding we would have a job whether there'd be a refuge so it's a it's awful situation I was there for about 14 years so you know a long time yeah god it was and that was in Glasgow was it that was in East Coolbride just outside Glasgow yeah kind of been reading recently about the the cuts you know the cuts to funding for for women's aid which just means that those areas of that sector which are so needed are just being cut back to the bone aren't they and it's not as if domestic abuse is going away so we need more funding Mm. and actually I wonder whether increased discussion about things like coercive control even if it's not physical abuse but the mental abuse that can go on so often within the home as well means that people are recognizing their own situation in a way that perhaps they haven't done before and seeking help I think just on Monday, a new law came out in Scotland, a domestic abuse law, which now includes coercive control as part of domestic abuse. So there's now a law, there's now, and you can be charged with domestic abuse before you couldn't be, before I think you would just get breach of the peace or, you know, aggravated bodily harm or something like that. So now there is an actual law that you can be charged under. I don't know all the details about it. It's just new. Mm. So um, in your work as a day-to-day, uh, your day-to-day work as a therapist, are you, do you specialise in a particular area or are you seeing kind of general patients, Madeline? I, I don't specialise, but somehow I seem to attract most people that have been abused or raped in some way. And, and that just really shows me as well that it's out there so much. You know, it's, it's what I attract in, but it's also, is so common. My story is not an uncommon story. My story is a story of many people. 
So a few years ago, you came across the Forgiveness Project and that led you to share your story publicly for the first time. Can you just tell us a little bit about what the Forgiveness Project is and how that came about? Sure. They've been around, I think, since about 2004, so quite a while. And it's run by a woman, the founder is called Marina Kentakazuno, and she originally just started it. She was a journalist, and she was just interested in people's stories of forgiveness, and it was an exhibition. It was called The F Word because it's quite a provocative subject. But then they had so many visitors and there was so much interest that the charity was born and they collect, as it suggests, stories of forgiveness. They also educate people. They do restorative justice and they run an amazing program called Restore, which we go into prisons and it's like a three, four day personal development workshop, really. And they have people like me sharing our stories and perpetrators that have, you know, changed their ways, sharing their stories too. And I witnessed it for the first time last October, and I was just completely blown away. It was so powerful. And one of the women at the end said to me, it's these few days has been, you know, the most it's the most important work she's ever done so far in her life. And I think, gosh, that's incredible. And when you shared your story online, what sort of, I mean, that's a, it's a big step to take, you know, you're putting yourself out there publicly was, about something yeah. <laughs> so incredibly difficult. You know, I guess I look back now and I see I was always building up to it because I'd taken part in some campaigns. And just before that, a year or two before I took part in a magazine or a newspaper article, it was an Edinburgh one. So not many people in Glasgow knew about it. And it was part of Scottish rape crisis campaign. This is not an invitation to rape me. So I shared my story and then the photographer called me and said, can we put your name and your photo? I went, no way. I don't want my name up or my photo. I was so ashamed still. So I was that one of these blacked out silhouettes that you often see in papers with stories like mine. And when Marina approached me, she heard of my story. She said, you know, you can be anonymous as well. And I remember I once spoke at a university in Northampton and there was somebody after me who spoke about trauma. I don't remember much of what she said, but one sentence always stayed with me. And she said, the pressure of holding on to our shame is like constantly keeping a beach ball under the water. Hmm. And I, I just thought that was me. And I thought, it's time. It's really time to let go of this beach ball. And I'm not saying it was easy. At first, I was terrified because I was still so concerned what people would think. But I've had such amazing support and you know, Marina calls us storytellers, she calls us story healers, and I have felt the power from sharing my story so many times. I've never regretted the decision to go public because it's not what it can do for me now, it's what it can do for other people. Mm-hmm. And off the back of that, you were then invited to write your memoir, Unbroken, which has just arrived for me from Amazon. So oh, uh, great. <laughs> it's two years old tomorrow, actually, which is amazing. It's it been a very am- quick two years. It's yeah, a- It's amazing. So can you tell me a little bit about the writing process and how that went for you? Yeah, I wasn't really invited to write it. Marina, often they have events, the Forgiveness Project, and they normally take place in London. But she messaged me and said, there's one in Shawlands Academy. Is that near to you? I said, it's just down the road. <laughs> so I went to the school and I heard one of our storytellers speak, a woman called Marion Partington, whose sister Lucy was murdered by Rose and Fred West. And when I heard her speak, I was mesmerized. She just emanated peace. She was just, the effect she had on the room was just, you could feel it. It was so, 
yeah, it was just alive, the room, and it was deathly silent. You could have heard a pin drop, and I bought her book that night, which is beautiful. It's called If You Sit Very Still, and in it she wrote, Now You Must Speak, and I had never thought about sharing my story more than I'd done on the website, but somehow that night it opened up a door in me, and I started to see all my words forming in my mind, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to write my story down. I had already written about 12 pages of what happened that one night, which is what Marina read originally. And once I had the thought of sharing my story, it literally, I was just a typewriter. The words just vomited out of me. It's the only polite way I can say. <laughs> and in about eight weeks, I just had finished writing 70,000 words or whatever it is. So then I decided to approach publishers and I obviously got a traditional publisher and it published, I got a contract about three, four months later. So I've been very lucky. It's been a very quick process for me because I know I've now got lots of friends that are authors, 10 years it can take, five years with three, four books in the bottom drawer, you know, waiting to get the right deal. So I was really incredibly lucky. Something life has always supported me. The book has had amazing feedback from a lot of very eminent authors as well. You know, you write really well and I'm really looking forward to properly getting stuck into the book. Um, have you plans to write anything further, Madeline, as well? I, you know, I get this asked a lot, but I don't really think so because I don't know. At the moment, you know, when I felt that book, it was really alive in me. It was moving and I couldn't stop writing. It was like the dancing shoes, but for my fingers. Um but I don't feel anything now. But now I feel I use my words to speak. So I'm actually in the process of ending being a psychotherapist. And I decided to focus on speaking this year. And I thought, okay, I need a sign. If this is what I'm meant to do, I'd like to work internationally. So I put this intention out there last year. And on January the 1st, I woke up with an invitation to South Africa. And four days later, an invitation to the Maldives, and I'm going next week to South Africa to speak. So I just thought, okay, that, that's a good sign. I'll take that sign. That's an amazing sign. So what are you speaking? Yeah. Is it to a conference or to a... Actually, it could be my worst audience or my best audience. I'm speaking at a speaker's convention. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's a little bit worrying, but I'm sure it'll be fine. And whilst I'm there, I'm also going to speak for another charity, somebody I know through the powers of social media, has connections with a South African charity. She lives in Australia, but she's coming from Australia to meet me. So that's very exciting. So I'm speaking for another charity event. We're doing a radio show and I think I'm doing a podcast. So Amazing. we're cramming quite a lot in a few days. Lovely. That sounds incredible. And um, in terms of your speaking over here, um, where is there anything people where people can find you like in real life? Where, anything that you're doing coming up? Yeah, well, there's something coming up soon, but I can't announce it yet. It'll be quite a biggie, so that's quite exciting. <laughs> so if you just go to my website and look at, you know, I've never really looked for work. It's always just come in. I've been very lucky. I have one coming up soon in May at a place called the We Retreat in Glasgow. And there's also another one coming up at Newcastle Noir, which is a book festival which is in Newcastle. I've just contacted yesterday by a library in Aberdeenshire that wants to look at gender-based violence, working with young people as well. And so, you know, that's in the pipeline. So something just always seems to pop up. Mm. And I always um, often talk to people on this podcast about the three M's of, of their life or their career, which is the, the mentors, their mistakes and their motivations. Because I think you often learn a lot from those three things about how somebody's 
life has extended. Um, have you had anyone mentor-wise who's kind of encouraged you through your career particularly and and or how are you kind of mentoring the next generation as you go? Yeah, So many years ago, when I was studying psychotherapy, a lot of people used to go to this workshop run by a man named Imaho, who is a teacher of life. And I thought, I'm going to go along and see what he does. And I could never really understand it. But I always knew that this is where I'm meant to be. And I've been going to his workshops for about 14, 15 years. I guess you could say he's a shaman. And he was the one who encouraged me to write my story down. And I was like, no way. There's no way I can write my story down. I wouldn't let you read it. I wouldn't let anyone else read it. But I then stopped and started it really over four years until one day after one of his workshops in Switzerland, the 12 pages just came out. So if he had never encouraged me to write my story down, I don't think I would be, I don't think I would have written the book or be speaking publicly now. So I do owe a lot to him. My mistakes, really, it's hard because it was part of my journey, but my mistake was to be silent for so long. And it's a really difficult one because you find your voice when you find your voice. But I wish if I was at school that I could have heard me come in and speak, you know, maybe I would have realized much, much earlier on the damage that the silence does to me. It just hurts me and it just protects perpetrators, really. And I hope now that I am encouraging other people to find their voice. You know, I just thought when I start speaking out, if I can just help one person or one person that reads my book and they've changed their ways, that would be great. But I really get messages every day from people that say, I'm finally going to go to my doctor because I realize now these memories are coming back. I have to do something with them or you know, I was on a radio show and, uh, with Sir Trevor McDonald, which was amazing. It's an incredible experience. It, it was not bad. I have Legend to say. of broadcasting. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty high up there. But what was amazing was afterwards, my friend's mum, to cut a very long story short, told her that she had been raped. And that day she had ended 64 years of her silence. And I just think, okay, this is why we do it. And she had just simply connected with a woman on the radio who understood. And she said to her daughter, she always thought it was her fault. She was to blame. But hearing me made me her realize that it was never her fault. So that's why I do it. That's my motivation. Absolutely. The feedback you get from people, some of it's on your website in reviews and so on, emphasizes the power of your speaking to open people's eyes to the issues of rape and abuse and to encourage other people who may have been in a similar position to come forward. Do you think that justice for rape victims is improving, Madeline, even a little bit slowly? No, not really. <laughs> I was, I was, I was just carefully choosing a word there. <laughs> In Scotland, we have three possible outcomes: we have guilty, not guilty, and not proven. So there is a campaign now to end the not proven verdict because it really says, "Okay, we know you're guilty, we just can't prove it." So how does that make someone feel? You know, who's a witness in her trial that? he's got away with it. And it's it's such a small, small percentage of any case that make it to court that end in a conviction. It's something like five or 6% up here, um, which is crazy. And it can be so re-traumatizing to go to court as a witness in your rape trial. It's, yeah, there's so many changes needed. I think maybe we need specialist courts. I think our judges need specialist training, maybe even a specialist jury so they can really understand 
the impact of what trauma does to somebody because you know you have to appear to be a perfect witness how can you be a perfect witness what if you're crying what if you're numb what if you're laughing there's so many ways to respond from trauma that yes yeah, so many changes needed mm. I find it um incredible it's something I've been quite interested in with through women's aid and everything is sort of the the seeming absolute difficulty for a woman to actually be able to get a conviction through and you know the the disgracefulness of some of the ways that pe women are treated in the med not just the media but by the by judges yeah and, <laughs> and and previously by the police and absolutely the and we've seen recently in, in ireland you know there was a case where the judge said well you were wearing a lace thong what did you expect so it was awful. What's amazing about the Irish is they took to the streets and there were huge demonstrations and people were flinging their lacy thongs in the air saying, well, this is not an invitation to rape me. It doesn't matter what you are wearing. 100% of all rapes are caused by rapists. I guess we can only hope that in future that and people like you keeping on talking about it and discussing it on podcasts like this to raise awareness that it's not your fault and Absolutely. That, that there is help out there. Find someone that you trust. It doesn't matter who it is. To have your story heard, to be listened to and to be believed, there's nothing more powerful than that. And if you can't find anyone else to tell your story to, Stop denying it. Stop minimizing it. Stop pretending it was less than and write your story down. Tell yourself your story. Well, on that note, I think that's probably a good place to finish. Um, where can people find you online uh, if they want to seek more about your work? Sure. I have a website, madeleineblack.co.uk, which is going to be changing soon. It's more, been more about the book, but it'll soon be more about speaking events. Or I'm on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So if people can go and find you there. I have to say, your husband sounds like an amazing person. He's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, have I'll a... keep him. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sounds like a keeper. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I always uh, just throw the floor open at the end of interviews to my guests to say is there anything else pertinent that you wanted to mention or discuss at all well really just what i said before just to reiterate if you're listening don't struggle alone don't struggle in silence go and get some help find someone to speak to don't be like my friend's mum who very nearly took her secret to the grave it's not your shame the shame always belongs to the perpetrators and there's always support out there it's never too late to find your voice so really break your silence, find your voice. And when we find our voice, we stand in our power. And, you know, we can really learn to be okay with our past and then live our present. Well, I wish you all the best of luck living your present, Madeline. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining me You're today. You're very welcome. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful at any point, then do please tell a friend. We are always keen for new listeners. As ever, we're on Instagram at Smashing the Ceiling and Twitter at Smashing Ceiling. And we'll hopefully see you next time. <laughs>